take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Acts chapter 12. I believe that's where we are this morning. We've been going through the book of Acts ever since last April. Um, so um, we're all the way to chapter 12. We hope to get to the end of the book eventually. But we've been learning great lessons as we've been going along. I've really been enjoying it. I'm probably enjoying it more than you folks, but I'm really enjoying it. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to uh, 24, I think it is. Yes, 1 to 24. And uh, I'll read it with a few comments and observations of explanation. And then after we read it, we will kind of dive into it to see what God wants to say to us. Because God loves to talk to us out of his word. He always has something to say to us, so I'm looking forward to you hearing what I've been hearing as we've been going through these verses. Um, we're reading in Acts chapter 12. I'll start at verse 1 there. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And I should just mention that in the Bible there are four Herods. They formed the, uh, what was called the Herodian dynasty, and the first three of them were very hostile to Christ and to the church. This particular Herod, his name was Herod Agrippa I. His grandfather was Herod the Great, who um, sought to kill the infant Jesus. And when he couldn't find him, he had the, the infant males under the age of two slaughtered in Bethlehem and around the area of Bethlehem. And then uh, this Herod had an uncle, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas was the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. And then there is this Herod who is determined to persecute the church. We'll meet the fourth Herod in Acts chapters 25 and 26, who seems to be less hostile to Christianity. But these three Herods were very hostile. So that kind of sets the scene. When the early church um, thought about Herod, this Herod, they thought of someone who was very hostile. All right, verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So this was one of the apostles. This was the first of the apostles who is martyred. Most of the apostles, I think all but John himself, ended up being martyrs and put to death by the state. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Now, that's a lot of soldiers. And uh, people have noticed how many soldiers were put in guard of Peter. And the explanation might be because back in chapter 5, Peter was in prison and then he was sprung loose, got away. And Herod was determined that this time Peter was not going to get away. Makes the story more interesting. Herod's determination to hold him. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now this is a turning point verse here. He's saying on the one hand we have this and on the other hand we have this. On the one hand, we have Herod wanting to annihilate the church. The church is praying, and then this is what happens. So that's a linchpin kind of verse there. Verses 6 and 7. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, 
bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also Mark, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Well, this morning I've given a title to this passage, and I want to prove to you that it's probably a good title. It's probably what the text is about. I've titled this A Violent Clash of Kingdoms, and I just want to show you how I got there, because um, there, I think there's markers in this text and throughout the book of Acts that would indicate that this is a kingdoms in a conflict. And so the first thing I want you to notice is how it begins and ends. It begins by describing in verses 2 and 3 that James is put to death by King Herod by the sword. He was probably beheaded. And then we read at the end that King Herod was put to death by God. So there's this conflict building right there. And it's violent. It's about kingdoms. And I want to suggest to you that this is about kingdoms, not only because Herod is referred to as a king, but because the whole book of Acts is about the spread of the kingdom of God. 
So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 3, you remember that before Jesus ascended into heaven and just before he sent his apostles out on a mission, he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. Why did he do that? Well, because that was their mission, to spread the kingdom of heaven throughout the earth. That's what that was about. And what that tells us is that Jesus is reclaiming a people of God for God, that he's making people right with God, that he's giving them a new life, that he is reclaiming the whole of the earth. And we see also this idea of a kingdom in the way the book of Acts ends. In chapter 28, verse 23, we're reading about Paul, now a prisoner in Rome, and we read that from morning to night, he was teaching people about the kingdom of heaven. And then the last two verses in the whole book say that Paul spent two years proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so you have this idea of the kingdom at the beginning. You have this idea about the kingdom at the end. And then all through it, you have these ideas about the kingdom of God. And so it's about kingdoms, and it's about kingdoms in conflict. God's kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness, and we see a vivid display of what's happening with kingdoms in this chapter. And then we notice that there is this clash, and we've noticed through the book of Acts that there is this pattern that Luke develops if you're alert. And what you see is that the kingdom of God is growing, and then there's opposition, and then the opposition is overcome, and then the word of God keeps spreading. You see this over and over in the book of Acts. And so, for example, we read in chapter 4 that Peter and John are arrested. They stand before the Sanhedrin, that is the Supreme Court of the Jews, and they are warned not to talk about Jesus. They're released, and what do they do? They talk about Jesus anyway, and the God's word keeps going out boldly. And then we see opposition to God's mission from inside the church, when Ananias and Sapphira, part of the church, it, they threaten the church, the church's integrity through their dishonesty and self-interest in the mission. And so God strikes them dead, this threat to the church, and after that we read that more and more people believe. And then in chapter 5 again, we read that all the apostles are arrested. All the apostles stand before the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, this time, they are flogged, so you can imagine uh, whips with bone or metal stuck on the end of them, and their backs are laid open, and then they're told not to talk about the kingdom of God. What do they do? They go out and talk about the kingdom of God, and we read in chapter 6, verse 1, the numbers kept growing. So we have this opposition, the kingdom of God growing, opposition to it, the opposition is overcome, the kingdom of God grows. We read again in chapter 6 that there's a threat of division in the church. Nothing kills the kingdom of God than division. Nothing kills more the kingdom of God than division in the church. But this division is overcome, and what do we read? The church keeps growing. And then we read in chapter 7 that Stephen is arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's warned against speaking about Jesus, and then his answer so incites the anger of the Sanhedrin and those who are watching the proceedings that he's driven out of the court and he's stoned to death. And after that, this general persecution breaks out against the whole church. And what happens? Wherever they go, fleeing Jerusalem, 
they're talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God just keeps on growing. And then we read in chapters 10 to 11 now the problem is from inside the church again. They don't want to accept the Gentiles on strictly gospel terms. They want the Gentiles to become more Jewish. But this problem is overcome. And what happens? The kingdom of God starts spreading all through the Roman and the, the Gentile world. So that's this pattern going back and forth. There is this clash of kingdoms, and it's happening today. That's the point. It's happening today. So let's look at chapter 12. This is the first time that the secular government now begins to oppose the mission of God in the world. And the first thing I want you to notice, the first point I want to make, is opposition to the mission is certain. And you see this in verses 1 to 4. And so what we discover in this account is that this struggle between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God um, is violent. It's a violent clash. And it's not only Herod that gets violent, it's God himself who gets violent when he crushes Herod. Now, why did the early Christians need this story? Why was this an important thing for Luke to remind them about in this book? Well, they would know in the future the powers of the state opposing them. And their leaders were going to be arrested and they were going to be imprisoned and they were going to be flogged and there's going to be this general opposition to the Christian message and they would be killed for giving the Christian message and they needed a true story showing that God is in control and God will triumph. They could look back to this and go, remember what God did. They needed this story because at times it would seem that the powers against them were absolutely overwhelming. Like when James was arrested and put to death. Can you put yourself in their shoes emotionally? One of their dear apostles is arrested and then they hear his head was cut off. Oh, like that would really dampen the ardor of the church. They needed this kind of story. And so Luke records the story of Peter and his arrest and his deliverance. And he gives these details in the story. He, he gives details that kind of highlight how the, the powers of the world seem just invincible. Like um, he's put in a prison. He's got extra guards on him. He's um, bound with chains. I mean, what chance does he have? this representative of the kingdom of God. How helpless and weak he must have felt and how threatened. What a heavy load. Now for us, being a Christian is not just simply adding a religious element to our lives. We begin to live for the kingdom of God. We live by its Values. We talk to other people about the kingdom of God. We try to persuade other people that God loves them and he wants to be part of their lives and they have to turn from sin and put their faith in Jesus. That's what we begin to live for. And as we live for it, we're going to face opposition. It's absolutely 
certain. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. Once he said as a rebuke to his own brothers, who at this point didn't believe in him, and he said to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its deeds are evil. Now, if we're like Jesus, we're going to face this opposition. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to feel like we've got so much against us, like we try and try, and our progress seems so small and incremental. There's Peter. He's lying in a prison cell, and he's remembering the good old days. I remember that first sermon I preached, and 3,000 people came to faith. And now, where's God? I'm languishing here in a prison. And you might feel like that. You're trying to be a, a light where you are, and you just feel lost for words, and like there's no interest in it. Even within your own family, there seems to be this pushing away. It can feel like an overwhelming force against you. Opposition is certain. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is victory needs prayer. Verse 5, victory needs prayer. We read, you know, in verse 1 there that Herod had intentions. He had plans to persecute the church, and his plan was to cut them off at the head, to get rid of the leaders. Start with James, see how the people respond. Oh, they like it. <laughs> well, let me take number one. Let me take Peter then. I'm going to execute him as well. Get rid of the leaders, and you'll put an end to this stupid movement. These Christians put an end to it. And so he kills James. He wants to kill Peter. And then Luke writes in verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. This makes all the difference. See, Luke wants us to see something. Luke wants us to see that Peter's deliverance is an answer to prayer. Now, I'm sure that the Christians, you know, prayed at home, and they prayed alone when they thought about Peter, but that's not what he's talking about here. The church, he says, was praying together. Do you know what churches don't do today? They don't pray together. The church was praying together, and Luke is very interested in his Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts to highlight this whole idea of prayer. He saw something about prayer. He saw that when prayer happened, things happened. And so, of all the Gospel writers, the four Gospel writers, no one records the number of times Jesus prayed more than Luke. And in through the book of Acts, he's always tying things that happen to people praying. And that's what he's doing here. He wants us to see that the deliverance is connected to prayer. And he uses an interesting adverb when he describes how they prayed. He says they prayed earnestly. You know, they didn't saunter into a prayer meeting looking forward to when it would be over. I mean, they just put their hearts and their minds to it. They were just very earnest, literally what it means, at full stretch. In fact, it's the same adverb that's used of Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane so earnestly. 
that his pores seep blood. That's how earnestly they are praying. Luke wants us to know that prayer is the Christian weapon. It's the weapon that they are to draw. We're not supposed to take up guns to enforce our uh, ideology on other people. We're not supposed to hammer people with it. We pray. We pray about it. And when a church takes up their weapon, that's when victories start to happen because we can call on the one who can shut the mouths of lions. We're, we can call on the one who can humiliate the pharaohs of the world or to put to death the Herods of the world, the one who can set prisoners free. Last week, Aaron uh, used the phrase, leaning into something. Can I suggest this? That as we have opportunities to pray together, that we lean into it. Just see where God will lead us as we lean into prayer. So that's the lesson there. That the opposition is certain, that victory needs our prayers. And then the third thing I want you to notice in verses 6 to 11 is that opposition is futile. And this is where the story actually, I don't know, I, I kind of imagine Luke as he's recording the details of this with a little smile on his face. It's a little bit comical what happens here. Luke reminds us that the kingdom of this world is no match for an activated God. The state seems all-powerful. It seems to have all the advantages. The death of James made it feel like God was inactive. And then we see that this is all God. Peter is going to face the trial of his life the next day. And what is he doing to defend himself? He's doing absolutely nothing. He's sleeping. He's fast asleep. He's not, you know, thinking through his defense and the great arguments he can come up so that he can win his day in court. He's sound asleep. He's not planning his escape. Uh, he's not trying to negotiate. In fact, when the angel comes, he has to sort of kick him in the side to wake him up. He's just dead to the world, sound asleep, doing nothing for his own skin. It's all God. In fact, when an angel appears, the angel doesn't seem to come in stealthily, you know, like, there's all these soldiers around here. I better... Peter. Peter. He doesn't come in like that at all. We read that when he comes in, there's this bright light <laughs> that illuminates the cell, and the angel is standing there looking at Peter, saying, Peter, wake up. Peter, wake up. And I can imagine the sound of those chains as they fell off Peter's wrist. You can imagine the loudness of those chains and uh, Peter looking around. What is going on around here? And the whole emphasis is that everything in Peter's escape is God's initiatives not Peter's. Peter is in a daze. And, uh, you know, he has to be coaxed and prodded. You know, the angel says to him, Peter, put on your clothes. Peter, put your sandals on. Peter, would you wrap yourself up in that cloak? Okay, now come, follow me. <laughs> Peter is just 
in a daze. And the mighty powers of the kingdom of Herod are sound asleep, totally oblivious to what's happening. Do you think victory depends on you? It does not depend on you. We're like Peter. We're just dazed and confused. We're weaklings. And no matter how bad it looks, the battle belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. God will allow bad things. He'll, he'll allow martyrdoms. He'll allow things to go poorly. He'll lay, allow things to drag. He'll allow you to make an effort in your ministry and you go two steps forward and then it feels like you're going three steps back and you're slogging along and it's discouraging and you're wondering why you're not making progress. He'll allow those things. But the victory belongs to him and when he wants, he snaps his finger and things happen. Things that he wants to happen happen. He's not nervous. He's not intimidated by the kingdoms of the world. They're nothing to him. Nothing. Now, the fourth thing I want you to know is that victory um, is God's. You see this in verses 12 to 7. When Peter finds himself outside the prison walls, suddenly it dawns on him that he's been rescued. I've been rescued can't believe it. And he thinks about those people who are worrying him or worried for him. The church is earnestly praying, pouring out their hearts. And so Peter, he goes to the house. And again, Luke describes this in ways that are kind of comical. Peter has just escaped Herod's prison. He's out on the street. He goes up to this house where people are praying, and he knocks on the door, and Rhoda, the servant, comes, and she's so excited, she leaves him standing there while she runs back to tell everybody. And the last thing you want to be doing when you escape prison is standing out in the open. Come on. <laughs> Rhoda, come on. Let me in. The church is praying with all their hearts for Peter, but they struggle to believe that God is answering their prayer miraculously. And their prayer is magnified in this story when the servant insists that it is Peter and they go, it must be his angel. You know, they have an easier time believing in ghosts than in answered prayer. Oh, the only thing that explains this is that Peter's dead now. It's his angel. Now, let me ask you, is this the picture of super Christians? <laughs> Christians who are on the ball? Not at all. I mean, these were ordinary, earnest Christians. They were not name-it-and-claim-it Christians. You know, they didn't go, oh, well, I knew. God told me that he was going to rescue Peter. I just had the faith for that. I, I just believed so much while we were praying that I'm not surprised at all that that's Peter at the door. That's not the kind of people they were. They didn't have everything under control. They knew that God answers prayer, but they had been praying for James, and he died. He was executed. They didn't know. They, they knew God could answer this prayer, but they didn't know that he would answer it. In fact, they were kind of doubting about that. And you know the lesson for us is that God loves to use ordinary people, people who pray but then not sure. 
that God's going to actually answer the prayer. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be super Christians. We don't have to pretend to be more than we are. We're just people who, who struggle like other people struggle. You know, we suffer setbacks, but we pray. We feel defeated, but we pray. We lack power, but we pray. We have doubts, but we pray. And God uses ordinary people who pray. We pray. Pray when he doesn't seem to answer the prayer and pray that he will next time. They pray. So opposition is certain. Victory needs prayer. Opposition is futile and victory is God's. Not the church's, it's God's. The fifth thing I want you to notice is that opposition is suicidal. You find this is in verses 18 to 23. In, in verse 18 we read, In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers. Now this is purposeful understatement to emphasize. It was a great commotion. <laughs> you know, how was the commotion over at Herod's place? Well, it was no small commotion. It was a huge commotion. <laughs> they were absolutely in a panic because these guards knew what happened to guards who lose their prisoners. Whatever was supposed to happen to the prisoner would not help him to the guard. And that tells you that this trial that Peter was scheduled to be a part of was just a sham. There was a total intention of putting him to death. We know that because when they lost their prisoner, they were put to death. That was his destiny. They were put to death for it. And, you know, Herod's personal concern is stressed in here. And it's stressed in here by Luke how he got really involved with this, how he was very concerned and frustrated and angry about it because it's to highlight his defeat. This was the defeat of Herod. He was doing everything he possibly could to stop this, and he was defeated in this. And then we read about Herod going to Caesarea to make this great public address. And we see something of the arrogance of Herod and that really in his heart of hearts he thought he could put himself up against God. That's what we see here. And Josephus, a Jewish historian who served under the Romans, also keeps a record of this event in his histories written um, just shortly after the time of Christ. But he describes this event and he notes this. Let me quote from Josephus. The king's flatterers were astonished at the radiance of his silver robe. So Herod came to Caesarea. He was wearing this flashy silver robe, and he was addressing them just as the sun was rising. And as the sun rose, it caught the robe and reflected light back to the people. So it was very grand, very spectacular. The king's flatterers were astonished at the radiance of his silver robe when it was touched by the first rays of the rising sun, and the people, Josephus writes, responded, addressing him as a god. They cried out, Be gracious to us. Hither have we reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. And then Joseph, Josephus comments that Herod Agrippa would not repudiate the adoration and so was seized with a violent 
internal pains and was carried home and died five days later. So Josephus records this, what Luke is describing here. And what Luke is doing when he describes the execution of the soldiers followed by the gruesome death of Herod is this. He is assuring us that even though things can go badly in this world, God will judge those who oppose him. Either those like the soldiers who are just going along with the flow or those who lead the charge to oppose God. God will judge them. And he will judge them violently. Opposition is certain. It's futile. It's suicidal. Victory needs prayer and it's God's. And the fourth thing, I, uh, the sixth thing I want you to notice is victory is through gospel telling. We've seen that Acts tells us of the mission of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth, to make, make people who are under the reign of Christ, who know the life of the kingdom in their souls, and that our victory is through our prayers, and that Christ's mission will spread and it's futile to try to stop it. Many have tried to stop it or control it. Every communist regime, for example, finds Christianity a deep threat but because Christians' first loyalty is not the state, it's God. And God and the state often don't agree. God brings victory through praying weak people and that the opposition of the kingdom is suicidal. But in verse 24, Luke reminds us, as he does every time, that gospel growth means kingdom growth. The spread of the gospel message is tied to the kingdom of God growing. And so what we read right at the end here in verse 24 is that Herod was obliterated by God, but the word of God kept on flourishing when the opposition was overcome. In other words, we have to be telling people. We have to be telling people. You know why we don't tell people? Opposition, disapproval, offense, scorn, threat. We have to tell people. That's what he's telling us. Like these early Christians, we have to pray that God will remove obstacles because there is this Herod spirit in the world that does not want the gospel to be told. We have to tell it. 